for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're in a series called Shaped for Glory Through Mission. And we're talking about resolutions. Resolutions to allow God, to ask of God, to follow God in shaping our life. The first resolution we looked at in Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 6 was shape my heart. And we talked about what it meant for God to shape us from within, our heart where God begins His transforming work. And today, we continue what we started last week and what we'll finish next week, Shape My Life. We're looking at Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 25. And today, we're going to zoom in on verses 10 through um, 19. And in the midst of this, we're going to talk about what we started last week. God, shape my life. Let me give you kind of the bullseye of where we're headed God shapes a life by the gospel of Jesus Christ to live in obedience to his word in character, in conduct, and in conversation. And so each week I'm giving us a resolution whereby we can participate in the transforming work of God in our hearts and in our lives. And I I explain this every week, but I want to be diligent to do it this week as well. A resolution doesn't so much state what we're doing for God as it recognizes what God is doing for us and in us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so that's why it's so important for us as we participate in this life-changing work to understand and to articulate. And that's what I'm praying these resolutions, how they will serve us in this process. So it says this, I resolve by God's grace through Holy Spirit at work in me to shape my life by God's word to live Christ-like in character, in conversation, and in conduct. In character, in conversation, and in conduct. Last week we started by asking this question, what does a life that is shaped by God's word look like? What is a life that is shaped by God's word? What does it look like? And we began by looking at four characteristics of a word-shaped or a God's word-shaped life. The first characteristic was simply this, that a life shaped by God's word places Jesus at the center of the home and as the center of the family. And we talked about that life in relationship with God centers on His Word. And I gave you two principal influences to center Jesus in the family and in the home. The first influence was the structure of the home, which is determined by how you prioritize uh, your rhythms or your schedule, if you will, uh, the people and the relationships that you have, and then the practices within which you entertain 
in your life. But it's also the second influence that influences this life and relationship with God is defined by how you speak the Word of God at the center of your life. And we saw where Moses was teaching them in verses 4, 5, and 6 how it flows out and then it goes into this rhythm of life. So when you wake up and when you lie down, when you walk about the way and when you sit down to eat and and you should bind them on your head and on your arm. And we talked about these aren't explicit commands that he's given, but he's given us an analogy. He's, He's creating in us the vision to understand that no matter where you are, no matter what you're doing, no matter who you're with, at all times bring the Word of God to the center of what you're doing so that Christ can be at the center of your life. And that's a principal influence and the way in which you exert the influence of God's Word into your life and upon your life. And so we talked about a life shaped by God's Word places Jesus at the center of the home and the family. Well, today I want us to look at characteristics two and three. Next week we'll finish with characteristic four. But as we move into the second characteristic today, I want you to see that a life that is shaped by God's Word lives as a steward of life and not an owner. A steward of life and not an owner. Go with me to Deuteronomy 6 and let's begin reading in verse 10. We'll read 10 through 15. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, Then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the people who are around you. For the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and He destroy you from off the face of the earth. Now let's stop there for just a moment. And let's talk about this second characteristic of a life that is shaped by God's Word, living as a steward of all of life and not as an owner. Now I know when you start talking about stewardship in the church, like infection begins to break out and twitching begins to happen. Uh, I can see it in your eyes first and then it moves to your head and finally throughout your whole body. But here's what Moses is saying to them. Moses is warning them against turning away from God when they enter into the promised land. He identifies all the provisions that they will have and the comforts that they enjoy. What does he say? Uh, When you come in, you'll have great cities that you didn't build, houses that you didn't fill, cisterns you didn't dig, vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant. So you're going to enjoy all of these things that you had nothing to do with creating. And he says this, the life that you will enjoy will be given to you by God. Will be given to you by God and not sourced by your own doing. But he's warning them in this because hear me friends, comfort and convenience, affluence and abundance breed forgetfulness and forsakenness like nothing else. 
Now let me clarify, because this is where it always goes awry when you talk about stewardship. The wrong thing to do is to think that having nothing is the right thing to do. Does Moses say, stay away from all of these things? No, he doesn't. What does he say? The city that you inhabit, the house that you live in, the olive tree and the vineyards that you eat from, right? What is he telling them? He's warning them not to allow the comfort and the convenience of them just already being in full bloom. He's warning them of all that they are able to fill their lives with. Do not allow it to consume your life so that you forget God, or worse yet, you use it to forsake God. You see, in this life, any perceived, and that's the key word, any perceived lack of need in life provides the greatest climate to produce a storm, a storm of neglect, a storm of idolatry, even a storm of apostasy where you walk away from God because you don't want to give up what you have and what you perceive that you've earned that fills your life. We see this in the New Testament where Jesus is questioned by the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler comes to him and says, Lord, I've obeyed all the commandments. What more is there for me to do? Right? You can hear it. In the tone of the writing. And Jesus says, have you done this? He goes, yes, this, yes, all that I've kept. What more must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus tells him, sell all that you have and give it to the poor. And come follow me. You see, Jesus didn't tell him that because the stuff was wrong. He told him that because the stuff had consumed his heart. And that was the very thing that was keeping him from trusting Christ. How important that is for us in a day with such excess. Worshiping God exclusively, friends, it consumes all of our life, our heart, our mind, our soul, and our strength. Or another way we could say it, I believe, is our heart, our mind, our feet, and our hands. Every part of life, our words and our conversations demonstrate the depth to which we are consumed with God, with obeying His Word, with knowing His Word. And words from the overflow of the heart, they speak, they demonstrate our character because what Jesus teaches us is it's what's inside a man that makes him unrighteous, not what's outside of a man or a person. And so the words demonstrate our character through the overflow of the heart, through what we say and through how we speak them. And and even through that which, here's what he says, even through that which we obligate our life. In other words, the things we swear by, the things we swear to, the things we commit ourselves to, the things we entertain and engage our life with. That's what he's talking about there. And Deuteronomy 6.13 shows how worshiping God begins from within, but it extends to every extent and every aspect of life. Let me show this to you. Go back to verse 13 and look at the words that Moses uses. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. In him you shall, or excuse me, him you shall serve, and by his name 
you shall swear. So he gives us kind of this three-word understanding to instruct us that all of life must be united. He says fear. We know that fear strikes the heart. So he's talking about from within. It is him you shall fear. Fear him first. It is him you shall serve. It's, it's not just the hands, the labors of life, but it's that in which we engage, in which we entertain in our life. Because serving is synonymous with loving God. And it is him by which you shall swear. That which you commit yourself to and give yourself to. You see, the inner character must agree with the outward conduct and all of life's conversation, our words, our speech, uh, our counsel and how we counsel other people and what we give ourselves to, what we obligate ourselves with. You see, Christianity doesn't just mean putting on some good elements in your life, but it means by the one who lives within you, allowing the life that he brings to you to live out in every way through you. You see, God designed your life both in the physical realm, the spiritual realm, and I would even argue for every other realm that we identify and label, emotional, psychological, whatever they ever may be. God designed you in every way and to every extent to live in this world sourced from how He is alive within you. And let me just give you a fact. Your life reveals how God is alive in you. Or not. Or not. You see, faithful stewardship unites all of life in order to honor one master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful stewardship unites all of life. That that life might honor one master. Master, the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is this? Well, friends, Christians, you are bought with a blood price. We do not own our life, let alone the stuff that surrounds it. And when we forsake or forget that our life is not our own, we act as though we are free to live as we please. We can take any and all of the credit that we desire, and we can curse God with the very blessing that He gave to us. And you go, well, I would never want to do that. None of us would want to do it. All of us would be guilty of it. That's what selfishness is all about, is it not? God redeems the whole person, to offer a whole worship. In our character, the depths of our being, in our conversation, that which expresses our identity and expresses our being, but in an outward manner, and in our conduct, in the way that we live and the way about which we conduct our lives. You see, the truth of the matter is, friend, you can look at your life and you can look at just the activity of life and you can at the very least see a symptom of what you believe. You will not do what you do not believe. Therefore, you can look at what you do and know for some reason, to some extent, in some way, Something that you believe is driving what you do. So when we see our actions as Christians, 
we can understand that we are either genuinely believing God when we obey, or in some way, shape, manner, or form, we are disbelieving Him when we disobey. A life that is consumed will be demonstrated through a life that is united in Jesus. Jesus models a unity of life. Let me show you how and maybe a little way you wouldn't have thought of. But he models this unity of life when he rejects Satan's temptations. In the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4 records that three times Satan came to Jesus and tempted him. And in this specific instance that I'm referencing, he took Jesus up onto a mountainside and showed him all the kingdoms of the world. And he said, Jesus, all of this can be yours if you'll just Throw yourself down from here. Do what I want you to do instead of what the Father wants you to do. And Jesus looked out and he went, wow, this looks familiar. Oh, that's right. I created it. Right? But what does he say? He actually quotes Deuteronomy 6.13. And he says, you should not put the Lord to the test. For him you shall fear. Did Jesus said you just need to go do the right thing? No. What did he say first? You should fear God. Why? Because the depths to which you believe something will determine the extent to which you will live it. And I believe in that moment, because Jesus was fully man, he was as tempted as any of us have ever been tempted to throw himself off that mountain and avoid sacrifice that was to come and yet what did he do he leaned into God's word reciting it to himself reciting it to the accuser and the antagonist and he quoted God's word that he might dig it ever more deeply in his life to anchor in the depths his belief and his hope and his trust so that when he lived it out he could be faithful and obedient in the doing of his life from what he believed with his life. You see, how you live in this physical realm demonstrates whether God is truly living in the depths of your being. Stewards do not go after other gods. Why? Because the one true God consumes their life. Listen, friends, Christians refuse to pursue any other God, but not, not because we're perfect, but because we're convinced What is a conviction? It's a deeply held belief, right? What are we convinced of? We're convinced of what Moses has told us in the essence of this this book study. That the Lord our God, verse 4, the Lord is one, right? And what have we learned about God? There is no other. And so when you see that the actions of your life and the temptations that come against you in this life are beckoning against what you believe, causing you, calling you, longing within you to go distrust God, what do you need to do? You need to get the shovel out and you need to drive more deeply your belief in this, that there is no other. And that false God that opposes God's word in you, that false hope that says to you God's word will not be sufficient for you, that false desire within you that says this will bring more pleasure to you than trusting God. You need 
need to realize that your anchor and belief and your conviction in the word of God needs to be deepened if you are threatened by being blown over by that. And you dig it deeper and you plant the gospel of the and the truth of God's word at the depths, then you tether your hope to it, you cover it up, you anchor it, and then you stand against the temptation that comes. And you do that only by the word of God through the gospel. That's what a steward does. A steward says, look, I'm not willing to say that I believe one thing and live another way. Jesus knows, and all the Christians in the world know, we've got plenty of people doing that. And too often, you and I are guilty of that. And the fact of the matter is, the way we live just really shows what we truly believe. And what I want to encourage you in today is not just the commandment of Moses, but the hope of Jesus Christ that says where you find that the living of your life disagrees with the truth of God's Word, understand there is greater depths to be dug into for greater hope, greater peace, and greater joy for your life. This is why Christians refuse to pursue any other God. You see, we, we, l- l- let me explain. We deepen the doctrinal belief of our life. That's our mind, our understanding. We, we don't just read the surface, but we try to understand and grasp That's engaging the mind. And listen, friends, for for 20 or 30 years at least, the pulpits of the church in America have been woefully absent of teaching faithful doctrine. We've chosen rather to just teach light application, feel-good, self-help ideology, And that's gotten the church into the mess that she finds herself into often today. And let me tell you another thing it's done while I'm chasing this rabbit. It's trained the people of God in the churches of God to not be able to stomach the preaching of God's Word. You want to know why I labor so hard every week? You want to know why the people that stand up before you to preach the Word of God to you every week are not going to bring a light word Because it will lead to a light living. And you won't have the anchor to your soul that you need for the junk that the world's going to throw at you. So I'm going to preach longer today just to show it. Not really. I'm passionate about this. The doctrine and belief of our life. And and in that doctrine, we anchor our hope and our faith. Listen, we dig deep and we plant the truth of God's word so that we can tether our hope to it. So that as we live this life and the winds of confusion blow against us, we will be anchored to walk worthy of God's calling. That's our feet. That's the rhythms and the patterns of this life. And we will be able to love the world in the name of of Jesus. Just last night I read an article where supposedly a major conservative evangelical Christian is turning his stance on the issue of homosexuality, sexual identity, and the, uh, uh, is it the LGBT or LBGT? I can't remember. And he's talking about this will change everything for evangelical Christianity. He's a major scholar that's shifting his position. I said, no, it's just going to change everything for him.
we might love the world in the name of Jesus. You never love the world when you have to lay down your Bible and take up what they're offering to do it. You can't do that, friends, because what you've just given them is not a love. It's an acquiescence. It puts something else, something other on the throne rather than God himself. Christians worship God alone as stewards, this unity of life. When our hearts are full of grace and gratitude, when our minds are consumed with God's truth through the gospel, when our lives are committed to live faithfully and to, to give generously, when, when, when we leave for the generations that follow a legacy of godliness. I, I repeat to you, Christian, you are not your own. You are blood-bought. Therefore, honor God with all your life, the spirit, the mind, the soul, and the strength. Speaking of doctrine, this passage identifies one that many people have difficulty with. When they say, for the Lord your God in your midst is a jealous God. God's jealous nature causes conflict for many people. How could God be jealous. You see, the problem is not God's character or nature. The problem is our perception and the way we understand God. God is holy, and that includes His jealous nature. There's no sin-stained faction or element to God's holy jealousy. Our problem arises when we interpret what we know of God by what we know to be true of us. You see, the way Christians understand life is to see it through the Scripture. We don't see the Scripture through life. And so for us, what Scripture says is our beginning point, and the way we see life is based on what it says. And so our responsibility is to know what God's jealous nature means and to understand how that matters for us. And I've talked about this already in a couple of sermons, but understanding God's jealous nature empowers us to know how He works for our holiness. God is relentless in His pursuit of us. He loves us. He is jealous for His glory in our lives. He's jealous for our holiness, even more so than we are. And friends, uh, let me make an application for us. If God's commands consistently and regularly bring your spirit into conflict with how he wants you to live or what he wants you to do, you need to seriously and soberly reflect and consider what you are trusting for your salvation. Here's what so many do. They read the word of God and they don't like what they read. Or it comes into conflict with their life. Maybe they're living in opposition to the Word of God. And God says, do this, and they don't do it. Or God's Word says, don't do this, and they do it. That's conflict. It, it brings you into this conflict with the way you're living. And what I want to say to you is if you claim the name of Christ and the Word of God brings you into conflict, your right response is not to dismiss it 
or reject it or even to refuse it, but your response rightly is to surrender yourself to it and say the word of God is true. My life is out of alignment with the word of God. Therefore, I surrender to its authority in my life. That's the right response. Now listen, I know this is hard because for some of you, it's repetitive, it's habitual, it's addictive. And you think God's condemning you because you can't break the addiction. You can't break the, 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 the habitual neighbor, na, nature of it. Excuse me. But what I want to say to you is that you need to dig deeper in what you understand God is doing in you. Again, we're going to return to the beliefs of our life so that we can anchor our hope to those things. What I'm saying is that there is something more deeply anchored in you that is driving you to that habitual sin. You don't believe what you claim you believe about God. What you believe is that that sin or the pleasure that it brings is actually greater than God. Therefore, it has replaced God in you. That's a false idol. And what you do with the Word of God as a steward, uniting all of life under one master, the Lord Jesus Christ, is you begin to dig in. Why do I run to this sin? Why do I run to this habit? Why do I believe it brings greater joy and pleasure to me when I know that the pleasure is so fleeting and the joy is so quick and then it's gone and the condemnation, the guilt, and the shame sets in? Why do I run to that? Because you are believing something about that more than you are believing what God's Word says about it. And until you dig it up and you root it out, and you plant the truth of God's word through the gospel of Jesus Christ right there, you have no hope that sin will destroy you, it will steal from you, and it will kill you. That's what the word says. That's why this is so important. A life that is shaped by God's word lives as a steward and not as an owner. That's what the whole focus of these verses is saying to us. Remember God. Man, in the throes of our temptations, what do we need to do? We need to remember God. When we're getting hammered, it's not because God's not there. It's because God's going to display greater grace and power and authority in your life than the promise of that threat or that temptation. And that's what Jesus shows us on the mount. When he goes back to God's word, he demonstrates for us what we can run to as well. Might I give to you the third characteristic? A life that is shaped by God's word lives as a steward, being fully consumed by God, but uniting all of life under the lordship of Jesus Christ. The third characteristic is this, that a life that is shaped by God's word holds a singular focus to trust God and obey his word in all circumstances. To trust God and to obey God's word in all circumstances. Verses 16 to 19. Let me read that for us right quick. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massah. You shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he has commanded you. 
And you shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, and that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers by thrusting out all your enemies from before you as the Lord has promised. Friends, Moses tells the people to not test God. Let me tell you what test God. Unbelief and disobedience put God on trial and they test his character. When we as proclaiming, professing Christians disobey, we say that God is not who he says he is, that his word is not as true as he claims it is, and that his way is not good, right, perfect, and holy as he has stated. Now, obviously, people who aren't believing in God gladly say that. They just don't believe. Then when he shows himself faithful so often, whether he disciplines us or whether he pronounces judgment, we get angry and we blame him for our unfaithfulness, for our unbelief. You see, God is not responsible for our unbelief nor for our disobedience, but he does. Hear me, friends. Many of you need to hear this today because you know you're living in unbelief, if not in your life, some total, at least in areas of your life where you know that you are being separated in your fellowship from God. God's not responsible, but He deeply cares for you. The intensity of the jealousy of God for His glory is the white-hot flame of pursuit with which He comes after you. To do what? To love you. To love you. This is why it's important to understand that God is a jealous God. He's jealous for His glory, and He is jealous for His glory to be realized in your life. His discipline is His loving kindness coming to practical fruition. He's yearning for you to return to Him and enjoy the fellowship for which He died. To give you the Hebrew people, they're to obey and to keep God's commands. That they're not just to do whatever they wish or whatever they think is right. They're to stay focused on God's commands in order to obey them. Moses doesn't tell them this. You know, here are the commandments, and I just need you to manage how you feel about them. Good luck. Do the best you can. Here are the commandments. Let's spend a lot of time blogging about them. And let's everybody give our own commentary about how we feel about this. Right? Whether we think it's right, whether we think it's wrong, whether we believe that this could be God or maybe this isn't God, this is just the formation of people and what they've imposed upon us. No, that's not what Moses tells them, is it? What does he say? Don't put God to the test. Don't put God to the test. And he's commending them not to live in unbelief and not to live in disobedience. He says this, he says, verse 17, you shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God. That word for diligence there is an interesting word. It's the same word that he's used earlier to say, guard yourself, guard your heart, guard your life, bring diligence to keep 
these commands. In other words, wage war against your disobedience. Wage war against your unbelief. Paul expresses this same sentiment in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he says, I discipline my body. And listen, discipline's a good word, but it is much too soft for us. What Paul is saying is, I profusely bludgeon my body if I have to, to keep myself in obedience. That's what Moses is saying. Do what you must do to obey because God is there with you. Obedience is produced by a fervent intentionality to live out our faith in Jesus and God's promise accompanies his command so we can experience deep joy, so we can know his peace, and so we can live and walk in his power to obey. Many of you get wrangled up in disobedience. You go, well, I just don't experience God's power. That's because you never take the first step to trust him. You say, why are you yelling at me, Pastor? I'm yelling at myself as much as anybody. When we trust, God shows up. He shows up. You see, testing God, it means this. It it means that believing His will is not best. His will is not perfect. There's got to be another plan. There's got to be another explanation. Testing God means questioning whether His word is right. Man, this is the oldest one. Could that really be? That... Listen, go back to Genesis 3. It's the oldest trick in the book. And Satan keeps, it's the first pitch he's going to throw every time. Promise you. Testing God means to speculate about or to accuse him of his way that it is not good. Well, that's the way of God, but I don't think that's the way that's best for me because I don't think my good is bound up in God's way. So it's speculating, accusing him. See, disobedience to God reveals unbelief more than inability. Disobedience to God reveals unbelief more than inability. I'm not telling you that you, in and of your own strength, are able to obey God. We know that's not what the Word teaches us. We can only obey His commands because He's given us a new heart, because He gives us the strength by faith to walk with Him. But listen, what I'm talking about in our life right now is not our physical ability in this realm. I'm talking about our faith ability. I'm talking about the fact that we just never take the first step to trust that God's going to be with us. And when we disobey, it's not because we weren't able to obey. It's because we chose not to believe. That's where disobedience grows from. And the singular focus for the Christian is obeying and following God. Friends, as long as obedience is optional for you, you will be acquainted with God's will. You will know much, potentially, about His Word. But you will never be shaped in your life by His power. The Christian's primary concern becomes what is right and good in the sight of the Lord. Questions like, oh, what's the harm? What's it going to hurt? 
those cease in your perspective. They cease in your cognitive operation. And what begins to shape your thinking sounds like this. What does God's word say? I want to know the standard of holiness. I want to understand what truth is all about. And I want to hope in what God's word says. Even though your heart may be disagreeing with it, you're saying, I want to know in my mind so I can inform my heart. You're also asking this. Not only what does God's word say, but what is most helpful to obey God. So in the living out of this belief, you're saying what will be most helpful for me to live in faith to do this thing that God has commanded me to do. You're asking that question because you want to trust and you want to obey. And then the third question that is shaping your thinking is what is most beneficial in order to make Christ known? Sometimes it's not just about what God allows for you, but it is about what God desires through you so he can be made known in you to the world. That's mission. Internal gospel transformation brings external change through obedience that results in increasing joy, even when the strife of life is compounding. And friends, let me just make one other application here. This whole aspect of verse 19 where it says, um, uh, you'll take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give your fathers by thrusting out all of your enemies before you as the Lord has promised. I'm going to talk over the next couple of weeks about warfare in the Old Testament. And we're going to kind of have an understanding, a re-envisioning of what that means and how we ought to understand that. But today, I just want to make a very simple spiritual application of this principle that can be practiced from this passage. Following Jesus is not just about what you engage in, but about what you thrust out from your life. Those things that oppose God, those things that may remain that continue to be a greater influence in you than God's word is up on you. And what I will say to you in this, it is essential for you to thrust those things out that lead you to live counter to God's word and way. Because when you hold the things that this world offers, it will almost inevitably prevent you from taking hold of what God wants to give you. Inevitably. And what I want to help and encourage you in is this. To trust that what you hold in this world is of a severely lesser glory than all that God wants to give you. And as Paul said, and we agree, I count this whole life as rubbish except to count Christ and to be known in Him. What would you be willing to let go of? Let me ask you this. As I need to land this plane. What are you holding that's causing you to miss God? What he wants to give you? What are you clinging to that's preventing you from where God wants to lead you? You know this because his word commands it or maybe commands against it. You know it because every time you engage and entertain it, your conscience bears witness against you that you should be doing this or you should not be doing this regard, uh, considering what it may be. You, you live under conviction or, or even worse, condemnation that comes upon your spirit because of it. 
You see, just because you want it, just because you like it, just because you think you could benefit from it, doesn't mean that you should have it or that you should entertain it. You should take it if God gives it to you. And to not take it if God gives it to you is as equally disobedient as to hold on to something that he didn't give you. Well, I hope you got all that. I got a little lost in there. The difference between obedience and disobedience will very often be determined by what you get rid of in your life. I'm going to conclude with an old school hymn. I've sung a couple of those today. The poeticness of the verses so often speaks to me. Maybe it will to some of you. This one's called Trust and Obey, that singular focus for the Christian. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. While we do His good will, He abides with us still. And with all who will trust and obey. Not a shadow can rise, not a cloud in the skies, but His smile quickly drives away. Not a doubt or a fear, not a sigh or a tear can abide while we trust and obey. Not a burden we bear, not a sorrow we share, but our toil He doth richly repay. Not a grief or a loss, not a frown or a cross, but is blessed if we trust and obey. But we never can prove the delights of His love until all on the altar we lay. For the favor He shows, for the joy He bestows are for them who will trust and obey. Then, last verse. In fellowship sweet, we shall sit at his feet. Or we'll walk by his side in the way. What he says we will do, where he sends we will go. Never fear, only trust and obey. Tunnel vision, singular focus. Trust and obey God. That's the third characteristic of a life that is shaped by God's word. As the worship team returns, I, I want to direct our hearts, direct our minds for the remainder of our time. And I want to ask you to respond to what God is saying to you today. Where God's word speaks, his spirit is very specific in making personal application. And so the Spirit of God is speaking to you today. He's identifying a, a feeling of your life, a relationship, a situation, a circumstance. Maybe it's an attitude. Maybe it's an action. Maybe it's a habit or an addiction. And God is saying to you, you don't have to trust that. You can trust me. And you know today God's calling you to walk out of that darkness, walk out of that deception, and to walk into his light. will never know the power of God until you take the first step but if you will if you will he will explode in your heart like rivers of joy that make Niagara look dry Christ is not consumed by what you've been or what you were he stands ready to receive you. 
to bring you into all that He has for you. That you might fully enjoy Him. Would you trust Him for the first time today to become a Christian? To turn away from yourself and to turn away from sin, to turn away from the world and put your trust in Jesus. I'm not saying all your problems will go away. I'm just saying as the verse of the song said, His smile will be warmer than the heat of your problems and will be more joyful and more pleasing in every way. Christian, have you considered your life today? Is the way you live in accordance with what you believe? in every way or is there some place some position of your heart or place in your life where God has said you need to turn this over to me you're living hiding this you just need to surrender it today he may want to take it away from you he may want to deliver it from you because it might be a sin it might be something that you just enjoy and it's not a sin but but you say God don't take this away from me because if you take it away from me I might not be able to enjoy it he might want to replace it with something of greater joy. You're in a place in your life where you're doing everything you know to do to trust in God, but you know that God's calling you from that place to another place. You don't even know what the other place looks like, but you know God's leading you to follow Him. You don't know if you have to give up your job. You might have to move. You might not have to do any of that. You don't know. All you know is that God's saying, will you follow me? And you're going, I don't know. Tell me the details first. And God's saying yes or no. Thumbs up, thumbs down. What's it going to be? How about today? It'd be thumbs up. All in. Just to lay it all on the altar. Say, God, whatever you want to do with this, I trust that whatever you replace it with will be of greater joy than everything it's brought to me. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, Help us believe in you today. Crush our unbelief with glory and hope. Destroy our doubts by faith. May Jesus be the greatest hope of our life. Friends, as we respond today, we're going to come to the Lord's table. If you're trusting by faith in Jesus today and you know that you're a Christian, I want to invite you to join us as as our people come to the table. If for the first time today you know you need to place your trust in Christ to become a Christian, I'll be here at the front. I would love to pray with you, to encourage you, to help you. Pastor Chris will be here. Let us minister to you. If you just need prayer, you're struggling with something, let us minister to you in this time. In all things, let's respond to the Lord as the Spirit of God leads us. Let's come to the table together to remember the sacrifice that Christ has made and to walk by faith, in obedience to Him.